0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this 69th Fireside Chat with Tom Campbell, with thanks to Oliver in Germany and Justin in California. Let's start today with Eric and Carolyn.
1: Thank you, Donna. Hi, Tom.
2: Yeah.
1: I have some questions today about uh, spiritual awakening. So there's a phenomenon that is often referred to as spiritual awakening which you also seem to describe in your book. You describe it as the realization that one is a unit of consciousness among many such units, regaining one's fundamental identity as a spiritual or non-physical entity and understanding one's relationship and oneness with all consciousness. I have a few questions about this. So the first one is, this fundamental shift in identity seems to occur to some people in a temporary way where the consciousness, after a period of a few seconds or hours or days or years even, reverts back to the dream state of being identified with a person or avatar. Whereas for other people, this shift occurs in a more permanent way, which is often referred to as abiding awakening. How would you explain this? And what advice would you give to people who experience this type of awakening only temporarily?
3: well when it's temporary it hasn't taken root in the at the being level yet it's being experienced and a lot of people get this temporary uh, experience often they'll go to a uh, a retreat of some sort where they'll spend you know two weeks of silence meditating you know 12 hours a day Uh, sort of thing. And by the time they get toward the end of that, they feel very, very connected. They have, you know, life changing experiences, a lot of things will happen. But then a couple of weeks afterwards, kind of back to normal. You know, they're sort of the same person they were before. It doesn't stay with them a long time. That's because it, it, you know, if you spend a lot of time on it, kind of concentrate on it and focus on it over a fairly long time, pretty intensive with it, then you you can get it at your being level to some extent, but you don't necessarily own it yet. Owning it, you have to spend some time living it, not just experiencing it in a retreat. You have to actually live it, and only through living it i mean that you know daily daily life for months if not years you just you live it then you own it it's yours permanently well you can always de-evolve i guess you could de-evolve out of it but uh, for the most part that's the difference it's it's the kind of the depth of the connection that it makes with you at your being level is it really a core part of you or is it just something you've Pulled down into that core temporarily because of your environment, because what you've been doing, because of how you've you know been focusing your mind, and then it doesn't last too long. Which is the problem with most retreats. Many people go to these retreats and take these training courses, and they they seem to be phenomenal while they're there, and maybe even for a short time afterward, but eventually they return and it's the same old self. Because in that retreat, that retreat is a special, you know, it couldn't have to be a retreat, it could be you go to a monastery, you know, and spend you know six months in a monastery, it could be all sorts of things, or maybe just in your own living room, maybe you don't go anywhere, you just spend a lot of time in spiritual pursuits. Uh, any of those things could do it. But when you put yourself in that situation, you take away all of the disturbances, all of the thoughts that are coming out of your your ego and your beliefs. Okay, now in daily life, you meet people, you know, things happen. You know, you get rained on, you know, you're late for your appointment and you get hollered at, you know, all kinds of things happen to you. And those things then will trigger an ego response which comes from fear or they'll trigger a belief of some sort, which comes from the fear. Well, you put yourself, you know, basically in a closet, you know, whether it's at a retreat or a monastery or in your own house, if you closet yourself away, then you're removing all that. You don't have those things coming in, pushing your buttons, trying in your ego, uh, that sort of thing. So you go back to normal life and pretty soon, you know, there's, life kind of overwhelms you. And now you're you get back to normal, because you have to deal with all those things. That's why you have to live it. If you can stay in that state and live it (laughs) without living in a cave and without living in your closet without living in your, you know, in your monastery, but actually get out be part of life, relationships, you know, have a job, do the things you know, take on responsibilities and then you still can maintain it, well, then you own it and it's yours for life. So that's typically, if you get very special circumstances where you take all the stressors away, then it's a little easy to get there and stay there for a while until you get back into life and the stressors all reoccur. So that's why it does that. Uh, So what advice would I give to people? When you have a profound experience, be it in a, you know, because you're closeted and you've taken yourself out of the, 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 the space where you get triggered with your ego and beliefs or not. But once you get in that space, hold on to it, keep thinking about it, keep yourself tied to that space. So as you get out now and go back to your job and go back to your family and go back to your, you know, your problems, that you have in the relationships and, and responsibilities. Keep that in mind. Keep that same feeling that same attitude. Keep it with you. Hang on to it. It'll be a little difficult. It'll slip away from you for an hour or two, but reach out, get it, pull it back. In other words, try to stay in that profound space of calm and quiet, and peace, tranquility, centeredness, stay in that centered state. And if you take it with you, wherever you go, eventually it will become your normal state. So I often tell people when they have a peak event in a, in one of my courses or something, I say, hang on to it. Don't let that go. Keep it there. Keep fe- refilling it, revisiting it. Hang on to those feelings and do that for months. You really have to work at it. It's not an easy thing to do. It's easier just to slip back into life and forget about it. But if you hang on to it, that will help you make that transition to where you own it, rather than just had, an ex- had a wonderful experience, but then it's gone.
1: All right. Thank you. That's yeah, that's very useful. Um, my second part of the question was, what role does this spiritual awakening play in our process of spiritual evolution? So how essential is spiritual awakening to our spiritual evolution? Is this a shift that unavoidably will happen at one point during one's evolution? Or is it not necessary or essential? MBT appears to be more focused on getting rid of fear, ego and belief and a bit less focused on this particular spiritual phenomenon. However, there are teachings and traditions such as Zen Buddhism, that focus primarily on getting people to achieve this spiritual awakening. So what is your take on that?
3: Your your first one, it's uh, not really necessary or essential. It is one path. And typically, it's a path where you can intensively focus on attaining that awakening. Um, If you have that situation, if you go to a, a Zen monastery or something, then they will have processes there, things that you do that will uh, help you come to such an awakening. Awakening, okay. In that case, then it's a good uh, that's a good process. But let's say you don't have a Zen monastery nearby, and you have a job that you have to work, and you can't get away from, and you have you know three children, you know a wife, and and in laws that are just moved in with you. And that's your life. Okay, well, now going to a Zen monastery is probably something you'd really like to do at that point. But uh, you have to sit, you have to be there and handle the responsibilities that are yours rather than escape to something easier. So in that case, it's not essential. It's not necessary. You can evolve in basically any situation that you that you find yourself in. And if you evolve in your normal situation, it probably will take more time. It probably isn't as quick, but it will be easier to retain it because as you grow, it's you, you're living it, you know, and you have the advantages of being challenged all the time. So I think when you do finally make it, though it takes longer, you're actually more solid in your understanding. You're more solid in your becoming love because all along as you've grown up, you had all of these challenges, things you've had to deal with, situations. You weren't closeted somewhere. So you had to come the hard way. It takes longer, but it's more, I don't know, it, its it's more lasting. It's more solid. You own it more, when you can create this spiritual space for yourself in the midst of your everyday life. So I don't really recommend for people to go out and, and, and uh, leave their ordinary life. Because the probability is that what they the attainment that they get while cloistered, will wane You know, will will go away with time unless they spend a whole lot of time with it and they remain in that monastery, then, okay, they can keep it for a long time because they're never really challenged that much. Maybe that makes the people in the monastery seem very, very spiritual. But I think developing your spirituality in the context of an ordinary life is really a better way to go. Because you will you will own it more solidly at the end, but it is going to take you longer. You know, so if you want to do it more quickly, then retreats and cloistering and you know joining a monastery may get you there sooner. But it won't necessarily be as deep. You won't own it as well. How many of those monks come out of that that, uh, monastery and get out into the world and actually, you know, have to go take a job to pay their way and, you know, have families and do all that sort of thing, and still maintain their spiritual space, probably not very many, they're not that solid. But if you gain it in that everyday space, then you're pretty solid with it. So that's kind of the difference. Um, Depends on what you're trying to accomplish. You know what? What are you trying to accomplish? If you want to get there quickly and you're going to live in a protected space, then by all means, you know, put everything else aside and go join a monastery. If you, you know, uh, if that's not the life for you, then just work on it. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter. You know, whether you're poor and rich, whether you do things that are, that are full of chaos, you know, you may you may be in a somebody that deals with chaos every day, you know, you may work as a doctor in a uh, an emergency room. Well, that's chaos. That's high stress chaos. The decisions you make are life and death decisions. And you make, you know, a 100 of them a day, a lot of chaos, but you can still find spiritual space, even doing things that are chaotic and high stress. It just takes a little more time. And you have to to uh, learn to focus, even in the midst of all that chaos. So that's really the difference. Um, Different, different, what do they say different strokes for different folks, you know, it depends on what you're what you're after and and, uh, what's important to you. Is it is it speed or quality? Or you you want a full life of doing all sorts of things? Because that's more challenging to you you'll grow a uh, more depth to your person you'll have more experience than if you're cloistered now your experience is very limited you don't have the same you know uh, breadth of experience as somebody who's not
1: in in fact there's many stories of great spiritual teachers um, who write great books on spiritual awakening and at least from my perspective, their experience is very genuine and they really seem to know what they're talking about. Yet you hear stories about them um, committing all sorts of immoral acts or, you know, making mistakes like that. So I guess that that's one of the costs that comes with leading a very excluded, secluded life and focusing only on spirituality and spiritual awakening.
3: Right. That would be a, that would be a risk. Your your spirituality is uh, is doesn't have a lot of depth to it. It's not as robust, let's put it that way. But yet you can you can talk the talk very well because intellectually you understand it, and even experientially you understand it. And you may train yourself to do you know telekinesis things or other kinds of things that, uh, you know, impress people, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you don't have an awful lot of room to grow. So yes, there's any number of stories where people who were genuinely very spiritual did understand, you know, had had a deep understanding, but a deep understanding that's largely intellectual and emotional is not the same as one that has been earned, you know, in the middle of chaotic life. There's just a difference between those two.
1: All right. Um, so I had a third part to this, I hope I'm not taking up too much time, but, um, is this spiritual awakening where the identity shifts back into the consciousness and away from the identification with the person or the avatar is that spiritual awakening um, dependent on or affected by the avatar that the consciousness is locked onto? So, for example, is spiritual awakening more accessible to IOCs locked onto healthy human avatars than it is to IOCs locked onto animals or humans suffering from some sort of mental or intellectual disability?
3: Well, if it's not extreme, you know if we take extremes, it's a different answer than if we don't take extremes okay if you have a uh, an avatar and that avatar is of you know average intelligence has an average job and an average income and you know lives an average life, then that's no impediment to spiritual growth if that avatar has, let's say, defective brain chemistry. So it has ADD or, you know, uh, obsessive compulsive disorders, or it has a lot of phobias or other kinds of things that might be um, they could be genetic, they could just be bad luck when it comes to, you know, the egg and sperm and all the various possibilities and combinations They may just end up with some bad brain chemistry. Things didn't quite work out right. In that case, then there are some limitations that come with that. Now the limitation is that from that perspective of that individual, remember this, this person that's here is logged on to that avatar and it, that avatar sets constraints on what that consciousness can do with that avatar. So if that avatar is, oh, I don't know, it would take something more dramatic, if that avatar is, is uh, um, mentally retarded, then that consciousness that's logged on to that mentally retarded avatar can only do so much as far as its ability to manipulate ideas and facts. And, you know, its level of understanding now is limited by an avatar that's mentally retarded. It doesn't mean that consciousness is mentally retarded. It means the consciousness can't um, process, can't process its information any better than what the avatar allows it to process. Because, and that avatar, of course, is a product of the rule set. So there's a basic, you know, that's the basic thing. If you play a, a, um, a virtual reality game, even though you understand what your character needs to do, you understand that the way to get, you know, to, to get through the maze is here, you know, first you do this and that, and you have to do the other thing and you just need to get past the doorway where the monster is. And you may understand that well, but doing it has a lot to do with your character. Does that character have enough hit points? Does that character have enough armor? Does that character have enough speed? Does that character, you know, on and on and on, which are attributes of the avatar, not of the consciousness. So if you don't have enough attributes um, from the avatar to do these things, then even though the consciousness may be perfectly clear on what has to happen and how it has to happen and understands a lot, it can't get that avatar to perform any better than what the attributes of the avatar are, because that avatar has to work within a rule set. So it's the same sort of thing. So a consciousness that's logged on to somebody with, with uh, severe dysfunction, has got to deal with that severe dysfunction. And he's just, he's limited to what he can process as to what that avatar, you know, what that avatar can process. So now he does have the ability to make some changes. He does have the ability to, let's say, the avatar is not really mentally retarded. He just grew up in a closet and was never taught anything. You know, he was raised by wolves, you know, something like that. And he just never got socialized or, you know, learned anything. He Maybe is illiterate and that sort of thing. But that avatar can work with that. If that's a pretty grown up avatar, that avatar can work with that. And rather than just feel sorry for himself, because he's not like everybody else, a grown up avatar would then start to fill in the things that he's missing, and work on it and focus on it. So the avatar, I mean, the conscious can affect some of what the avatar does, and the consciousness can, to some degree, manipulate the rule set, manipulate the biology. It might be able to modify the brain chemistry to some extent. But again, only in as much as the uncertainty allows. So if the if the dysfunction is caused by something that has a lot of uncertainty in it, then the consciousness may just be able to modify that. But now the, the uncertainty is the uncertainty that comes with the rule set. You see? <clears throat> Whereas if it isn't something that has any uncertainty with it, you know, your, your thyroid gland just doesn't work or you don't have one, you had to have it removed because it was cancerous. Then that may affect other things in your body that the consciousness isn't going to just grow you a new thyroid gland because the probability of that is very, very low. There's very little uncertainty about that. You see, so it's stuck there. So there's a long, there's a big gray area of Yeah, it could, it could affect them a little bit, or it could affect them a lot, or it could, depending on what the cause of the dysfunction is. And the ability of the consciousness to work with whatever he has to work with, and help get around it, you know, help uh, refocus it. Unfortunately, uh, the brain is a very plastic entity. So if part of the brain doesn't work well, usually with a little effort, you can reroute those problems and that function to other parts of the brain can pick that function up. But that would only be if it had a consciousness that focused on doing that and achieving that end. So if your consciousness was pretty low entropy, it might be able to focus on achieving that end if the consciousness were higher entropy it may just run around going oh no why me oh no why me you know and it wouldn't focus on anything so depends on a lot of variables there
1: yeah thank you that that does make sense uh, it was a little bit confusing for me because when that happens that sort of shift in perspective there's a sense of oh what i am is not dependent on this avatar thing and so, there's this sense of as if it's entirely independent of it. But I guess that's not the case. In a sense, you need the avatar in order to in order to be able to realize the fact that you're beyond it. And so it's, it's kind of confusing in that way. But I think we yeah. should clarify yeah. that.
3: Okay. If you but see, we get to a point. Let's say that the avatar is not an impediment. That's that normal avatar with normal intelligence and normal lifestyle and so on. That avatar doesn't form any sort of impediment. So it doesn't really provide any serious limitations to the consciousness. So the consciousness can feel pretty free to develop and become whatever it can become. So that's why I said it depends on what the problem is. So in that case, the consciousness may feel like um it's independent well it is independent of the avatar in a way it's consciousness it's part of the larger consciousness system it's not organically a piece of the avatar but as long as it's logged into this virtual reality it can't process or be or do things that the rule set as embodied by the by its avatar you know can't do things that that doesn't allow. So that's the thing. But there's very little an avatar has to be pretty seriously compromised before it would seriously compromise the consciousness and what it could do. So even a, a, a mentally retarded individual could grow quite a bit, you know, the consciousness could evolve quite a bit because a retarded person has challenges, has issues they have to deal with. Another way of thinking of it, Eric, is is think about decision space. Okay. If your avatar is a dog, then your decision space is very small. If your avatar is mentally retarded, your decision space is relatively small. If your avatar is extremely bright, is a genius and very healthy and very fit. Now your decision space is much bigger, you see? And the bigger your decision space, the more choices you have. The more choices you have, we can say the easier it is to evolve. The quality of your consciousness, you can evolve into a greater space with more choices. So you can look at it that way that basically, the dysfunctional avatar limits the decision space in which the consciousness can operate. But unless that's pretty severe, the consciousness can can evolve quite a bit in any of those cases. You know, in, in you know, the first question you asked about, you know, the You know, we we talked about whether you were closeted or not, you know, whether you're I guess the words really cloistered or not, um, is the same thing. When you are when you remove yourself from society in general, your decision space goes down. You lose the richness of those choices. That's just another way of looking at the same of the same problem, you have less decision space when you're in a monastery, because you get up every morning when the bell rings, you know, you do this, you do that, you wash the dishes, you know, you clean out the latrines, you go to meditation, you do this, and you kind of on a schedule and you go through the process. And your decision space is relatively small. Because you've got routines, you've got things that you do. And, that makes it that's a problem in some ways that makes everything easier in other ways that makes things harder
1: all right thank you very much sam that clarifies it for me
0: i wanted to ask uh, i sort of have um a practical question so whenever i'm uh, triggered i can sort of like um, Like whenever I'm triggered, it's basically because of out of an irrational reason. So intellectually, I can understand that it it makes no sense to be triggered. right? So I sort of um, tell myself that. And then uh, I think that I've understood it. But then, then a few weeks later, I get triggered by the same thing. So I was sort of wondering... Yeah, like how how do I notice that I don't just shove things under the rug and I deal with them?
3: Well, for one, you have to be patient with yourself. You're not going to, you know, most of the fears that you will have that will create a trigger are things you've been carrying around for most of your life. So you'll have, you know, 30 years worth of, carrying around that fear. And you can't just drop it off one day, because you find it inconvenient. Oh, I shouldn't have said that. See, that's causing a lot of trouble. I just gonna get, get rid of that. You know, it doesn't work like that. You've been carrying this fear around for a long, long time. You've gotten it out of your culture, you've just its come out of the air, it's a part of you. So pulling it up by the roots and getting rid of it, it's going to take some time it's not going to be a fast process. Now for some people, sometimes, they can make it a fast process. And some people can get to the root of something and say, "Ah, I see it. And I see why I'm like that. And I see what it is. And I don't want to be that way. And it's gone. But that is not the way most people experience it. Some people do experience some issues like, like that get rid of it quickly. Mostly, we catch ourselves being triggered, being irrational, having these feelings. We know that it's irrational. And instead of saying, I don't want to act that way, which carries very little power, you need in your mind to say, I don't want to be that way. And then take 30 seconds right at that time to repeat that 10 times. I don't want to be that way. Put some oomph into it, put some energy into it think about it, you know, you can might you can just think a little 32nd meditation, you know, and tell yourself, I don't want to be that way. And get it as deep as you can, into the feeling, put some power behind it. And then two weeks later, you'll do the same thing, you'll trigger on the same thing. And you do the same thing. You said, Oh, there I am, again, I don't want to be that way. So take 30 seconds or a minute, and impress on yourself that you don't want to be that way and just keep doing that. And you'll find that, all right, the first 10 or 15 or 20 times, it won't seem to be working because you just keep getting triggered in the same way. But you will find that eventually that triggering will get less and less. Whereas before you got really upset. Now you only get sort of upset. And then maybe four or five months after that, you just get a little upset. And then after that, it's gone. It doesn't upset you at all. The trigger, has gone away. But it will take time and you have to just keep pushing on it and working with it. But just having that intent that you don't want to be that way will lead you to do all the right things to get rid of it, to not be that way. So you need to stick with it, keep working on it. Um, Sometimes it helps people to go back and look at the root cause. the the, the root fear. What is it? You know, you feel not good enough, or you feel inadequate, those don't have to be the same thing. And if that's the case, or you feel frightened, or the world is scary, or whatever, not taken seriously, that you might be abused or taken advantage of, whatever the fear is, if you can If you can find it, then you can spend some time in a meditation session, going to that fear and dispelling it. Sometimes you have to experience it first. Let's say you feel fearful that you would be abused, that you would be, you know, misled or taken advantage of. And that's a fear you have. Well, go back and say, where did that fear come from? why did you feel that way where did you pick up that fear you now have you do you have a a long history of being taken advantage of and of abuse and go back and look at those things even if you say oh yeah i've been you know taken advantage of a lot go back and look at those things and see how it wasn't just that somebody took advantage of you but you played into that situation it was it was partly you too your choices is why you got taken advantage of not just the other person. And then you have to go visit those things. And why did you make those choices? You see, so sometimes working backwards to it can be very helpful because all the time you're working back through history with it, you're also putting intention into not being that way. So that just becomes, you know, so these are some of the things that you can do. To get rid of it. But you will get rid of it if you keep working on it. If you can, you know, not give up, you will succeed. And don't get angry with yourself when you catch yourself doing it because anger now is another negative thing. And that will just feed negative feelings about yourself. So you just need to recognize it and without anger, don't get upset with yourself. Just say, uh ah, I don't want to be that way. Why am I that way? What's, where do these choices come from? You see, don't get upset with it. If you get aggravated with yourself, then you're actually feeding the negative. Well, I hope that helps a little Caroline.
0: Oh yeah, that helps a lot. Thank you very much. And then there was like a little funny thing I was wondering, you know, like dogs, they dream, right? But mm-hmm. could like a dog also have like a lucid dream or a bumblebee? Like let's say if like an IOC is locked into a bumblebee. Could it also have an out-of-body experience? Like be constrained here but be fully aware in NPMR?
3: Well, I don't know why not. It is consciousness. It's just consciousness with a very limited decision space. So it's going to function and operate like any consciousness. It just has to do so in a limited decision space. So I don't see any reason why a dog couldn't have a lucid dream or, you know, get uh, data out of the database or, uh, you know, communicate telepathically or remote view or do any of those things. It's consciousness. These are just the attributes of consciousness. So all that should be available to anything that's conscious, including the bumblebee. But they have to do that within the confines of a very small decision space. I don't know how big a bumblebee's decision space is, but it probably doesn't have a long list of choices. Most of its choices are probably hardwired. You know, it's just the way it is. You could call that instinct if you like. It's just hardwired into their DNA to do the things they do and feel the way they feel. But within the context of its decision space, I don't see why it wouldn't be able to do anything that any consciousness could do. But it's a very limiting context.
0: Okay, thank you very much. All right, Arman, please go ahead.
2: Uh, Thank you. Hi, Tom. Hello, Arman. Nice to be here. I think it was like 12 years ago I first found you on YouTube and then ordered you a book. It's had a great impact on my life. Thank you for that. Uh, My first question is uh, related to strategies to reduce fear and become love. Uh, In life, it seems that people easily end up in destructive patterns and have a hard time uh, getting out of them. Uh, in some cases, I think people feel anxiety because of their actions and what they have manifested in their own life. Uh, and they see that mm-hmm. it becomes a negative spiral. Once, when I was uh, in a meditative state, I asked the question of why we humans are so judgy. And I saw that many people have self hatred. And because of that, they turn their focus to other people to hide their. Mm-hmm. anxiety of not liking themselves so they hate others that are flawed because of uh, that themselves are flawed so uh, my first part of the of the question is if you think the uh, lcs is uh, developing new ways for, for people to become love, maybe there are some ways to collaborate that haven't happened yet in a larger scale and uh, an example would be if like um, People had regular dreams that they can view and see situations from other perspectives, other points of view, and and maybe can accelerate development. Uh, Have you thought about things that uh, can improve?
3: Yes, in a general way, the larger conscious system works with us to the extent that we are. You know, what available to be worked with you know the extent that we can understand and make use of what it does so if we are a very high entropy individual then the system you know has different choices different tools it's going to use to work with us if we're a very low entropy individual high quality of consciousness then the system will can work with us in different ways we have a larger decision space it can it can, uh, interact with us in ways that are appropriate for us. So all the, the help and the interaction you get from the LCS is custom fit to you. It's not just a general thing for everybody, but it's custom fit to you. So as we, we humanity, we grows up and has a higher quality of consciousness, the way the system will interact with us or can interact with us will change. Absolutely. So it depends on us as to how we interact and how it interacts with us. So for example, people who, you know, there are people who would say that they've never experienced anything paranormal, that they've never, you know, had any, non-physical entities they've ever chatted with, the the guides never talk to them, even though they intellectually understand all that and how it works and even believe it, it just never happens. Why Why won't my guides talk to me? You know, they talk to other people, but they won't talk to me. Why is that? Well, for the most part, that's because you're not ready for that conversation yet. And that's why. So the system already differentiates person to person, and and treats us in ways that are appropriate for us. So eventually, when you get to have a, a higher quality of consciousness, you'll find all kinds of things that others might consider paranormal, they happen to you every day, your whole life becomes a, st- a string of Odd things that happen, synchronicities, you know, just fall out of the air. The things you need just materialize and you get them. But if you're not ready for that, then that doesn't happen to you. Because if you're not ready for that, you just say, wow, what good luck. Okay, I'm going to enjoy this. But if you are ready, you say, wow, it's really amazing how this larger system can be helpful to me. So you see it in a different context. So in one case, you know, you, you, your context is all about you. It's a self centered context. And the other the context is one of opening your mind and seeing things from a bigger picture. So, yes, it, it depends on the individual person. Go ahead. Uh, you had more. You had more parts uh, to that, that question.
2: Yes, I, th- I think you actually answered the second part. Uh, but it, my, my second part was if the uh, the IOC can get frustrated with uh, the free will awareness units' destructive patterns and try to come commun- communicate and help, for example, like a parent trying to coach a child in the right directions. But I think yeah, you, you answered that.
3: Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the system will do what it thinks is most likely to succeed for you. So if you're a person and you may be a, a very bright person and you may uh, you know have a, a high position of authority and all sorts of other things, but you may be totally committed to materialism. And if you can't measure it, it doesn't exist. And anything that anybody thinks exists that they can't measure, well, they're just having a hallucination. And if you have that kind of an attitude, like many scientists would have that attitude, then there's not a whole lot the system's going to do. Because if it tries to give you something to wake you up, you'll just brush it off and deny it. You won't deal with it, you'll refuse to process it. So people like that go through their life and never see any of these paranormal things or never have experience with synchronicities or you know, telepathy conversations or uh, precognitive dreams, and there's no point in pushing any of that on them, because they won't deal with it. So, yeah, the system does what it thinks how it how it can help us. And some people, there's just not much they can do to help. You know, that person just has to grow up some and and get a little more open minded before they can. Uh, be helpful.
2: Yes. Uh, thank you. Uh, I have another question. Uh, it's about my uh, job. It's very fun and creative. Uh, I get the opportunity to explore myself and dive in uh, into other perspectives a lot. And it's very fun. But, but the industry I'm in mean, is... Uh, in many ways, kind of rough. It's it's like a marketplace where you have to pitch yourself and talk about yourself all the time. And and um, um, I work a lot with trying to let go of expectations and being in the moment. But I still have to focus on my goals to survive in this industry. Uh, so it's kind of difficult sometimes to balance. Uh, the work life because it takes up so much time and, and energy uh, so I was wondering like if uh, you have any empathy perspective on how to find balance in one's profession when industry like this kind of almost uh, is little narcissistic in kind of way
3: um, yeah. yeah I can help you a little here it's not the actions that count it's the intention. Okay, so if you're in a job, and that job requires you to be um, well, all about yourself be self promoting, in order to go someplace in this job, But you have to convince other people how great you are. And you have to constantly do that. Otherwise, you'll fall off to the sideline. And that just seems to be the job you're in, then you can do that. But not in the context of that being a reflection of who you are, but in a context, if you're just acting in a role, if your job requires it. Now, if your job requires you to do something unethical, now that's different. Now, if you've got a job that says, Oh, you need to, you know, you need to steal this money. You need to, you know, turn in fraudulent reports or whatever. Well, now you get a different problem. And that problem, you start looking for another job, you know, find something else to do. And uh, try to get out of that situation as soon as you can, in a way that you can still survive still pay your rent, you know, still put gas in your car still, you know, take care of your family, but you get out of it. And you try to avoid doing those things. Um, if those things only happen to people who advance, you know, if the people if the underlings can be honest people and be ethical, but the higher up you get, the less ethical you're supposed to be, then you can always decide not to accept the promotion, you can stay down at a level where you don't have those kinds of issues to deal with. So there's other ways you, know, you can deal with that. But that's different. If it's just a matter of, say, having to promote yourself all the time. And that feels very egotistical. Well, if you did it for the reason that you were trying to impress people, it would be egotistical, because that would be you doing it. It comes out of a space of needing people to think highly of you. That's a need of yours that comes from a fear of you're fearful that people won't think highly of you. But if you do it just because it's an act that you put on at work, then Eh, it doesn't cause you any difficulty. It doesn't drop your spiritual level and whatever. It's just the way you have to act at work. At work, you have to, you know, promote yourself all the time because that's the nature of the workplace that you're in. So it depends on your your intent. If your intense egotistical, then yeah, that's an egotistical thing. If your intense not egotistical, then it's not. So you can... You can act in many ways, you know, the, the females who have gone into the workplace, have to deal with this sort of thing all the time. Because the workplace used to pretty much be dominantly male place. And to come into a, a workplace that's dominantly male, particularly, let's say in an industry that's engineering, where there are very few females, the females that do come into that place, have to put on an act they don't act the same way at home that they act at work there's two different personas they carry when they walk into work they're tough-minded you know engineers who get the job done and so on and so on that's how they act and if somebody says something they disagree with they you know they get right back and and fuss about it and complain well you don't know what you're talking about they get very direct. And what they do is they act more masculine <clears throat> because that's what that situation demands. The whole situation is built up around, you know, kind of masculine interactions. So they tend to act that way. But when they leave the office, they don't act that way. So they have a problem of of uh, kind of having one personality at home and another personality at work. It's just the thing that they have to deal with because that's the way their workspace is. Now, it doesn't make them do things that are unethical and it doesn't make them do things that are wrong or anything. It just makes them kind of shift gears when they're at work. They may be much more aggressive and much more demanding and and much more uh, argumentative at work. But that works for them at work. They may not be that way at home. And if they can juggle that split personality, if they can juggle that and keep the two separate, then they can be very successful both places. If they can't juggle that, and now they take that that tough, you know, uh, engineering attitude back home with them. Now there's problems. You see, so you're kind of in the same thing. You don't want to change who you are. You want to grow spiritually. You want to keep doing that. And as long as you don't let that environment at your work change you, you just put on an act to work there, then, okay, you can get by with that. Now it would be nice. If you could find a job where you didn't have to act now, nah, that would be more pleasant and maybe you'll keep your eyes open for that. But Sometimes we don't always get to choose where we can work and what industry we're in. We have certain skills and talents and that puts us in certain spaces and we have to deal with those spaces positively. So instead of those spaces, getting you down and making you feel bad, you have to do what you need to do as long as it's ethical and be positive, get your job done, interact the way you have to interact, but don't let it, affect who you are internally. Know that it's just an act and don't let it bring down the rest of your life. So workspaces are like that. There's a lot of people who go to work and put on a whole different personality when they walk through the door and then take that personality off again later. And there's others that don't succeed they put that new personality on. And after a while, they take that new personality home, too. And it changes them who they are, and knocks them really off the course of their development, because they are now living to an image, rather than rather than being authentic. So stay authentic to yourself. But do what you have to do at work. And don't let the, the work make you unhappy. Just say that's the way you have to be at work and that's okay. That's just the way it is. I'll keep my eye out for better work. So I don't have to do that. But as long as you're stuck there, then make the best of it. Be successful, compete successfully with the other people who are all promoting themselves so that you can, you know, learn the game. You, you can, you can figure the game out, you know, with the best of them. And actually you have an advantage in the game because if you have, intuitive skills as well that you've developed on the spiritual side, then you'll know things that they won't know. You'll be you'll be a good competitor, probably better than the others, because you've got more depth to your character and more information and a bigger decision space to work with. So you can be successful at doing those things, as long as you don't run into somebody asking you to be unethical. And actually, for the company, that would be a very good thing. Most companies would really benefit by having some people work their way up in the company, who had a lower entropy, who had a bigger picture view of things. So we'd all, you know, we'd all benefit from people being in the upper echelons of, of corporations, who had bigger pictures. And probably the only way to get there is if you're a good actor because that's the only way you're going to move up into that position. So think of yourself as a guerrilla fighter. You know, you ha- you stay undercover.
2: Yeah, that was uh, very insightful. Uh, thank you. The the fun thing is that actually the work is very creative in itself, but but uh, the other stuff around around the work is making the right connections and getting the right people to see to see my work and mm-hmm. like yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah. It, it has the both both worlds actually
3: yeah yeah you can
2: you can live in both worlds thank you
3: tom campbell here in mbt events hope you like this video We now have well over a 1,000 hours of free video on this user-friendly, ad-free YouTube channel. Though these videos are free to our viewers, they represent many thousands of hours in production and editing and many thousands of dollars invested in video and audio equipment along with the required computers and software to store and process the raw video into finished products. So far, all of this content has been funded directly out of our own pockets. Be assured! We will always continue to do what we can. It's our life, our purpose, a labor of love that we will continue to pursue as best we can. However, those pockets are not as deep as they used to be. Thus, we are now seeking to augment our resources with support from our viewers. If you find something of significant value in our videos, please consider supporting their production through our Patreon account or through a one-time donation. The links are in the description below. Thank you.